Jedi Council is a podcast for entertainment and informational purposes only. It should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council podcast where we like to explore mental health and your favorite fictional characters. This is your Jedi Council co-host, Brandon Saxton. And your co-host to Jedi Council, Katie Gordon. How are you doing? Your other co-host? Your other... That's felt weird to me because co kind of implies other. I'm reminded of... Or multiple. uh, (laughs) The Office, when Jim and Michael are (laughs) co-managers. Oh, yes. Gosh, that's really funny. Uh, When Michael starts to feel a little bit, uh, like, defensive about it and... Well, I'm the senior co-manager, or says that he's the manager and Jim's the co-manager. Let's just remind him that. I'm happy we don't have that power struggle on this podcast. No. But We're true, truly co-hosts. Yeah, that's true. Not senior, Equal. senior co-host. No <laughs> assistant co-host. to the regional co-host. Yeah. Oh, man. Now I'm thinking about the office. I'm going to be distracted all episode, just laughing. We'll just switch topics. Then. That sounds good. We haven't done an office episode in a while. Quite a while, like. Yeah. Nine months, maybe? Wow. Maybe longer? I don't it know. might be overdue. It might be overdue for another <laughs> uh, real good Office episode. Mm-hmm. So fun to talk about and even more fun to watch. That's true. That might not be true. It might be equally fun to talk about <laughs> the Office is to, to watch it. That's true. So good. Anyway, how are you doing today, Katie? I'm good. The weather is nice, which always makes me happy. <laughs> is it still, though? Because I saw there's a 60% chance of rain as of like 4 o'clock. I, well, I like I mean, rain. <laughs> I do. I also like rain. And I don't know if that's changed because there are no windows in the studio. No, it's true. It's uh, it's truly a dungeon. But so. it, but this morning it was not raining and it no. was nice. But well, that's, it all goes, it changes so quickly in the Midwest. Yeah. It can just 30 degrees within the matter of hours. So I don't yeah. Know. One time actually, <clears throat> now in the, this new Jedi Council mm-hmm. weather podcast, <laughs> the, uh, I heard this, but I don't know if it, I never confirmed it. It was like a high school teacher that told me this. Because I took like all of the random like meteorology mm-hmm. classes and everything in high school, and uh, apparently there was a town in northern Minnesota where the weather changed so quickly, the temperature that like the glass started to like break what? in the town. Wow! I don't know if that's actually true, but you know, it seems plausible. Mm-hmm. But I'd be interested to look it up. Yep. After, because I don't want to be you know faked out. You know. Snopes probably has something on that. We spent a a number of weeks covering myths, and here I am, maybe perpetuating a weather myth. So I don't feel good. It seems like a MythBusters stunt they would perform, right? Like they would see, like if you change the temperature rapidly, would something happen? Is that show still on? I don't think it's still on. I don't think it is. They had but the, I could the, be wrong. the B-list people on there for a while, and, and I sort of gave up on it. After yeah, that. yeah, I haven't seen it in a while, but one of the ones I particularly liked in our new Mythbusters podcast <laughs> was one where they were looking to see if alcohol really would keep you warm in oh, like sure. freezing temperatures. A... Did you happen to see that? I didn't know. So, for some reason, I. I think, if I'm remembering correctly, they had, like, one of those dogs that has the little barrels. What are those? The little shepherd dog things that have the... They wear them around their neck. I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> I You look skeptical. I, <laughs> so I'm starting out with... Um, it's like the little whiskey dog. <laughs> anyway, so um, they were drinking in the freezer. 
Okay. That's Google did not help the appropriate Whiskey dogs didn't, I mean, just <laughs> did not help the wrong. It's like the dog with the whiskey thing around their neck. There we oh, go. See? Yep. It, I can <laughs> confirm to our listeners it did dog pop up on with Google. with whiskey barrel around neck. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So um, oh, these sure. little things. Anyway, they're very nice cute, boy. but I, this may or may not have any relevance to the Mythbusters episode. I have to look at it. Oh, oh St. Bernard's. Oh, okay. I knew that, but I forgot. Um, anyway, they're in a freezer, and then they're drinking alcohol, and they're taking their body temperature. Okay. And in conclusion, spoiler alert, that is not a good, healthy way to stay warm, because basically your extremities can feel more oh. warm from the alcohol, but not your whole body, and so coats are better. Coats or are... not going out into the freezing cold weather. Both things that I prefer. Yeah. So that's a fun little fact, vaguely related to temperature. Yeah, that was a fun... T- Which is vaguely related to weather. <laughs> Which is not at all related to our topic of the day. <laughs> no, not at all. Which is... A, yeah. So we started that, well, a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. We completed it last week. The podcast Gremlins ate that episode. So we're going to recreate that episode today, play by play, with all the same jokes. No, <laughs> I don't remember any of the jokes, but I'll count on you to recreate them. I don't know if we had any jokes. It was more of a just straight to business uh, and and just getting into the nitty gritty of the disorder and then talking about Monk, which is a topic we both really enjoy talking about. That's right. So I think I think that... It's kind of serious, and though we try to be lighthearted. Yeah. I won't say it was intentional that we had that tangent just now and that beginning opening stuff, but I'm glad we got some of that in before it does get more serious. We didn't have that in the first take of this episode. No, so that's a bonus. Because the weather was different that day, so mm-hmm. we, couldn't, we couldn't have the same tangent on the Jedi Council tangent cast. Would you like me, before we go into OCD, bring some closure to this issue of, oh, of you, the St. Bernard's oh, and alcohol it. I need it. from the Mythbusters website. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Mythbusters website. I, love I hate it. to have inaccurate information out no, there. No, it's so let me. So let me check. Of course, there's some pressure to say yes because we're recording, but I guess you can cut <laughs> out later. Will drinking alcohol help you feel warmer? Busted. That was what nice. they found on the show. Since at least the 18th century, St. Bernard dogs with barrels of brandy, oh, it's not whiskey, famously attached their collars have been warming snow-stranded travelers in the Alps. But does alcohol really raise your body temperature? The Mythbusters got out their sniffers to get to the bottom of this myth. Turns out just one alcoholic drink could make you feel warmer, but actually lowers your core body temperature. How does alcohol employ this rule of opposites? Alcohol may make your skin feel warm, but this apparent heat wave is deceptive. A nip or two actually causes your blood vessels to dilate, moving warm bud closer to the surface of your skin, making you feel warmer temporarily. At the same time, however, those same veins pumping blood closer to the skin's surface cause you to lose core body heat, the heat you need to survive, especially if you're stuck in a snowdrift. This could lead to fatal hypothermia. So a snifter of brandy may make you feel hot, but you certainly won't be that way for long. So important fact, especially for people who live in places like Fargo. Yeah. Can I note something about the Mythbusters website really quickly? Sure. I sure wish that the busted was a bigger font. Yeah. It's just it's just normal, if not smaller size font. Exactly. So like a quick skimmer might not see that. I didn't. Not right at first. You didn't I should... really know how it was going to end because it's mm-hmm. so hidden there. I wish that was a size 72 red font. Just busted. <laughs> right there. That would be nice. Maybe like a, a red or something mm-hmm. so it really stands out mm-hmm. from it. They have a suggestion. Oh, they do have a feedback in the right-hand I'll be submitting a, yeah. a note later for good. sure. Very good. We'll get that website taken care of. <laughs> 
Thank you for closing that myth for us. Yes. Now, our roadmap for today, but now that we've covered the myth of will drinking alcohol make you feel warmer or help you to feel warmer, is talking about OCD. Yes. Last time we talked a little bit about the disorder. We talked a little bit about obsessions and compulsions, kind of what those consist of. We talked a little bit about obsessive-compulsive disorder and how that differentiates from OCD. Or Oh, wait. I said that wrong. Obsessive-compulsive personality disorder? Did I leave out the personality? I can't remember. But we did we talk about it. We see why people confuse them often. Yeah. I mean, they're literally one word difference. They're so. very close. And, mm-hmm. and if you, uh, like other people, confuse them, you can listen to the part one episode, and hopefully that'll clarify it yes. a little bit for you. Um, and so we kind of clarified some of that. We talked a little bit about maybe prevalence rates and etiology a mm-hmm. little bit, if I'm remembering right now. So today we want to dive into the diagnostic criteria of the disorder from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM. We've talked about that before on the air. That's the book that mental health professionals use as kind of their guide to whether or not individuals meet the diagnostic criteria for specific disorders. And then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder and um, some resources that might be available for folks who might be struggling with obsessive compulsive disorder symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if I got, is that everything we're going to cover today? Oh, and then of course, uh, monk. We're yep. going to talk about monk a little bit, and uh, and maybe a little bit about the depiction of OCD and how that fits into uh, whether or not we think it's good or bad or helpful or hurtful and all those sort of things. That's right. Okay, so let's dive in on the diagnostic criteria. I'll start us off, uh, and I'm just going to read this right out of the DSM because uh, I want to give you the information right from the source. I don't want it to be filtered by me and my memory, which isn't always the best. So uh, to meet the diagnostic criteria for obsessive-compulsive disorder, uh, you need to either have uh, obsessions or compulsions. Uh, Both, of course, also qualifies, but you need to have at least one. Um, obsessions are defined in the DSM uh, by either uh, one of the four following or by the four following. So recurrent and persistent thoughts, impulses or images that are experienced at some time during the disturbance as intrusive and inappropriate and that cause marked anxiety and uh, distress. So asking folks, do you have the thoughts that continue to come into your mind uh, even when you try not to have them? And you have to ask to uh, do the thoughts, you know, do they feel inappropriate? Do they feel intrusive? Uh, do they, is it distressing? to you? Does it bother you that you have those thoughts? Um, The thoughts, impulses, or images are not simply excessive worries about real-life problems. Uh, So it's not just related to things that are going on in their everyday life. These are things that are intrusive, excessive, exaggerated, or inappropriate to that person in some way. The person attempts to ignore or suppress such thoughts, impulses, or images, or to neutralize them with some other thought or action. Uh, That's where some of the compulsions come in as a way to uh, suppress or kind of reduce the anxiety associated with some of the obsessions. And then the person recognizes that the obsessional thoughts, impulses, or images are a product of his or her own mind and not imposed from without, as in uh, like with thought insertion. So thought insertion is this idea that thoughts that you are having are being put into your head by someone else or something outside of your own mind. And the person recognizes that these thoughts are a product of their own mind. It's not something that's coming from someone else. And that kind of helps you differentiate it from what might be uh, relate, uh, symptoms related to uh, psychotic disorder or something like that. Yep, that's right. Um, so those are the obsessions. And moving on to the compulsions, those are defined by I only have two. So oh, you, you're really doing the heavy lifting Oh, that's here. okay. <laughs> it, it all evens out again. <laughs> um, one, repetitive behaviors. So those can be things like, for example, hand-washing, 
ordering things in certain ways, so doing things by color or alphabetizing, and obviously I'm not talking about when those things are necessary, like you're at work and you're mm. putting files away, but it again, it's all going to be if it's to an excessive extent. Checking things, so that includes things like checking to see if the lights are off, if the stove is off, if you locked your car, if the water's off, or mental acts such as praying, counting, repeating words silently, and here again, we're not talking about people who are praying and there's no associated distress or impairment. When it's a compulsion, it means that it's something they feel like they can't stop doing and it's getting to the point where it's causing problems. Um, so the person must feel driven to perform these types of compulsions in response to an obsession or according to rules that must be applied very rigidly. And this is just to take a note on cultural context. This is where if you're trying to figure out if what someone's doing is abnormal or atypical is probably mm -hmm. a less judgy uh, mm -hmm. word atypical from for within their own culture this is a good time like for example if someone describes praying a certain number of times or a certain way to check in and see what their religious background is and see how it compares to other people within that religious denomination and you know, sometimes reach out to the clergy to say, you know, do you think this is typical or not? And that can be really helpful in a clinical situation because you, if you learn that, oh, what they're doing is not a compulsion, that's, that's typical within our cultural context, then you know not to pathologize or make something sound like a mental health problem when it's not. But if the clergy member or the, the church or whatever religious organization they're involved in says, no, actually, that's not typical for this. This is that person doing that, and um, we don't really tend to see that. Then you can also use that as, as a resource to help the client understand within the context of their beliefs why what they're doing is not required by their faith. And that's been helpful in the past to consult, for example, with clergy that will say, you know, I'm concerned about the way this is happening, it seems to be causing distress, or it's overly time-consuming, whatever it is. So it's a good place to kind of check in about that type of stuff. And then secondly, the behaviors or mental acts are aimed at preventing or reducing distress or preventing some dreaded event or situation. However, these behaviors or mental acts either are not connected in a realistic way. So for example, if someone has an obsession that they... Um, what would be a good example of it not connecting in a realistic way? If someone is driving over bridges and they say a certain saying, song, or phrase in their mind while they're over bridges because they believe that will mean that the bridge won't fall apart or something like that, it's not connected in a realistic way in that example. Um, but the second thing is if, um, if something is designed to neutralize or prevent something but it's clearly excessive. So an example of that case would be like someone who has an obsession about contamination and they have germs and washing your hands does help to reduce the germs on your hands but if it becomes excessive they're doing it a lot, they're spending hours, their hands are actually being damaged by it, then it can still count as a compulsion even though there's more of a realistic connection than some of the other things that you sometimes see in that type of behavior. Yeah. So beyond the having either an obsession or a compulsion, uh, as defined by those two sets of things that we just talked about, um, another one of the diagnostic criteria is that the individual at some point during the course of the disorder has recognized that the obsession or the compulsion is excessive or unreasonable. 
Um, so uh, having checking in with them and saying, you know, uh, so the, you're washing your hands about 50 times a day. Do you think that's too many times a day or does that seem about reasonable for you or about what, uh, you know, an average person might do? And uh, so the diagnostic criteria, of course, is that they would say, you know, I understand that's too many times. Uh, to wash my hands at once or in one day, but that's just how many I have to do it so I can feel okay. Um, there is sort of a a, a way to, um, you know, for folks who maybe have poor insight, of course, who maybe just don't have the insight to understand that it's excessive or unreasonable, they can still meet the diagnostic criteria, even if they don't, if there's a situation where it is clearly excessive or unreasonable, but maybe they don't perceive it that way. Or, for example, for children, that doesn't qualify for children because they don't always uh, they don't always understand the, that it's excessive or unreasonable either. But but yeah, that's one another one of the uh, the diagnostic criteria, of course. Okay, another one which we've already mentioned, but I'll, I'll mention again: the obsessions or compulsions have to cause marked distress. They're time consuming. For example, they take more than one hour a day, or significantly interfere with the person's normal routine, occupational or academic functioning, or usual social activities. Or relationships. So some examples of how that might happen is if someone is always late to work because they're taking extra time checking to see if their light's off, if their stove is off. If someone has their power shut off because they are can't sleep because they're so afraid that um, they forgot to turn something off and it's, it's going to move down. Um, social activities or relationships. If someone is so afraid of germs and other people handling their food that they never go to restaurants or eat at friends' parties, and, and it ends up impacting their ability to make friends or have relationships. So those are some things come to mind. Anything else that you can think of? Uh, no. Okay. Very well covered. I guess the other one that I've seen, too, is it, where people have an obsession when they feel a bump while they're driving and they're worried that they hit someone with their car, even though there's no evidence of that. When it gets to a certain level, they might choose to stop driving mm -hmm. or they which can be, it's not, it depends on where you live too, right? Mm -hmm. If you live someplace with good public transportation, you can kind of work around mm -hmm. it, though there might be other problems involved. But if you are living in a place where you need to drive, it might shorten your ability to get to work and mm -hmm. things like that. Or if you drive anyway, but it takes you a long time because you're getting out, checking your car, retracing your steps and things like that can become a problem. So the point is, and we've kind of been getting at this anyway, is that a lot of people have thoughts that come into their mind that mm -hmm. they might not like or that might not make sense. That's not that uncommon for people to have those thoughts, right? Like sometimes when people are standing on a balcony or by a train or on a bridge, they might have a sudden weird flash of jumping off, mm -hmm. and that that feels weird. But that's not an obsession. It really has to get to this place where it's really causing the person distress and impairment. Or similarly, compulsion. If you like things organized and set up a certain way, that's not a problem, you know, that's not, that's, unless it gets to this extent, right? I think we talked about that a little bit mm -hmm. in the part one episode, too. Mm -hmm. uh, just, you know, uh, for example, I, I like to have things kind of squared away and kind of neat and orderly in my apartment mm -hmm. or on my desk. Uh, and there are maybe some people who might say, oh, Brandon, you're so OCD. And, of course, that's just not the case. Mm -hmm. uh, people with obsessive compulsive disorder are, are really struggling, in, and they're really having a, uh, a lot of distress and impairment because of the symptoms they're experiencing. I'm just kind of a, a tidy sort of person. Yeah, ex exactly. And so there's a huge realm of these things that happen on mm -hmm. a continuum, and it's really only when it gets to the point where you're being hurt mm -hmm. in some way and that it that it might be considered a disorder. Yeah, absolutely. Should we talk a little bit about how uh, 
OCD is treated? Yeah, I think that's really important because there is a lot of shame often associated with obsessive compulsive disorder kind of related to what Brandon said about people often recognizing that the obsessions or compulsions are excessive or unreasonable, but they can't stop Mm because that's part of the disorder. And another, so there's shame in coming forward with it, but there also can, some people can feel kind of hopeless about the ability to change. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's, let's definitely talk about treatment. Yeah. So the, the front line treatment for obsessive compulsive disorder, psychological treatment or Mm -hmm. behavioral treatment is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. Do you mind, I remember in our first take mm-hmm. of this, you did a great summary of what cognitive behavioral therapy oh, is. So if you yeah. don't mind doing that again. No, I don't mind at all. I think it's important. So cognitive behavior therapy, of course, which is something we've talked about on the show before, but just in case you don't remember, just to kind of walk you through it again. Um, CBT, I'm sure it's something that you've heard, CBT, the letter, uh, it's actually an initialism. Did you know that? An initialism and an acronym? That's another tangent. No, what's I, the I recently difference? learned this. An acronym is uh, specifically when you can say the set of initials. Oh. So what, what's an example of one where you can say? Like ACT? ACT. That's a perfect one. Yeah, you can say it. But something like CBT or FBI is an initialism. Oh, interesting. Yeah. ACT is acceptance and commitment therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is another great type of therapy. But mm-hmm. for today, we'll be focusing on <laughs> or, or CBT. <laughs> Just make it in an acronym. <laughs> Doesn't you work. You can quite do it. As well, but Rolls off the, t- the tongue. I'm going to start to uh, get the trend going. So CBT, <laughs> of course. Uh, here's your crash course on CBT. Um, CBT is primarily consists of finding out. Uh, there, there's something called the cognitive triad, which consists of your thoughts, uh, an emotional response, and a behavioral response. So. The kind of the way they conceptualize it is that we all have some core beliefs about ourselves as a person, and those core beliefs can sometimes lead to something called an automatic negative thought uh, or automatic thoughts. But in this uh, specific example, an automatic negative thought. So, for example, um, an automatic, you would have maybe, here's an example I like to use when I'm in session. It's unrelated to OCD, but I think it illustrates the process well. You're walking down the street, someone's walking down the other way, who you know, and you wave at that person, and they don't really respond to you, they just kind of keep going down the street, and you keep going. Uh, so an automatic negative thought that you might have in that situation is, oh my goodness, that person's really mad at me, they, they must have done something, they hate me. Uh, so the the goal in CBT, or let's walk through the process a little bit further, I'm sorry, that would be the automatic negative thought. The emotional response, of course, when you have a thought that someone doesn't like you, or someone's mad at you, isn't good. You might be hurt confused, sad, frustrated. And then the behavioral response might be the next time that you see that person, you don't say hi to them. Just as one example, of course, for different people that could go into different uh, responses. Um, The goal in CBT is to get someone to come into session and figure out uh, what are those automatic thoughts and sort of teach the person to catch them and then be able to challenge those thoughts. So in that example, you see someone down the street, you wave at them, they don't wave back. The automatic name thought might be, oh, they're mad at me or they don't want to talk to me. But you challenge the thought. Maybe they didn't see me. Maybe they're having their own bad day and they just aren't in the mood to talk. Maybe it wasn't the person I thought it was. And the goal of it is to get someone to challenge the thought so they don't have the emotional and the behavioral responses to kind of break that triad. And at the end of treatment, hopefully, uh, they can do that on their own. So you kind of teach them that process. And it, it sounds maybe a little bit simplistic, but it's hard to do. It's hard to catch those thoughts and it's hard to change that process. So, And I think that's part of what makes it hard because if someone is already struggling with mental health issues 
and they're trying on their own to do that mm-hmm. without a therapist or like a really good self-help book. Mm-hmm. But even that, um, it, it's hard to do on your own, even for therapists. When therapists mm-hmm. have trouble with these things, they seek help from other therapists, even though mm-hmm. we know the skills. And, and so there's no shame in reaching out for help. And, and it can look deceptively simple, I think. Oh, yeah. We all have our own biases in the mm-hmm. way that we see the world. So it's, it's vitally important to have someone else there who understands the skill and can kind of help you check yourself a little bit and challenge those thoughts. Because when we're having them about ourselves or the world around us, it's really easy. Uh, if you're maybe you're struggling or you have a propensity for, for coming to those negative conclusions or you have a negative belief about yourself, it's easy to fall into the negative automatic thoughts mm-hmm. and not be able to challenge them always and not see that that may not be the reality of the situation. Yep. Very true. So that that's a general framework. So thanks right. for that explanation. And when it comes to specifically obsessive compulsive disorder, the type of treatment, and we will link for more information about this is, as we said, it's called exposure and response prevention, and it ties in cognitive behavioral principles as well as some kind of classical conditioning Mm -hmm. principles, too. And what I mean by that is that it involves, similar to the episode where we talk about anxiety and fear, Mm -hmm. is that the person faces what they're afraid of because typically what happens, the cycle is an obsession will come into someone's mind. So say the obsession is... Someone's walking into a building and they say, I didn't lock my car door. Someone's breaking into it. And they say, no, I probably locked it. And it's probably unlikely that they're going to break into it. And they keep going about their day. They go into meeting, but they can't get it out of their mind. Now they're, it's really building this obsession. They're really picturing someone breaking into their car. And so the anxiety is ramping up. And then they leave in the middle of the meeting and run out and check to see if their car door is locked. That checking, that compulsion behavior... And again, we're talking about when someone's doing this repeatedly or or it's interfering with their life in some way, then reduces that anxiety. So it works really well for reducing distress. The problem is, is that you get into a situation where you're reinforcing negative reinforcement in this case. So you're in an aversive emotional state. You feel really anxious and you escape it through the compulsion. And so it makes that connection even stronger. So it makes it even more likely that the next time the obsession pops into the person's head that they're going to run out and do the compulsive behavior. And in the example, I said this can interfere because if it means leaving meetings or social outings or things like that, it can do that. So what exposure and response prevention does is the if you had to look at kind of the main ingredient of it is have the person have the exposure to the feared stimuli, in this case, the obsession, but they are prevented from doing the response. So in the case I just gave, the person would have those thoughts about their car door isn't locked, but they decide as a goal with their therapist that they're not going to go out and check. And at first, you're going to see the anxiety increase, increase, but eventually it's going to go down, similar to what we see with phobias, for example, if someone is afraid of bunnies, for example, um, at first they get anxious and anxious as they're there with it, but over time you see their anxiety kind of go down. And what that does is it weakens the association so that the person is less likely to do the compulsion. So that's kind of the behavioral part of it. And the cognitive aspect of it may involve teaching the person some ways to cope with this obsession so they don't just have to sit there with total discomfort. They might look at like, what are the odds? You know, how many times have I actually left my car door unlocked? What are the odds of someone breaking into it? Or even other things like, you know, I can tolerate this discomfort. 
you know, I, I can deal with it. Eventually it's going to decrease. So you, you give some coping mechanisms too. And if the person is too uncomfortable to start off with doing that kind of um, level, this is where a therapist is really helpful and, and kind of picking something that feels okay as a starting place. So it might be, yeah, you can run out and check your car, but you only do it for one minute instead of 30 minutes or whatever the usual thing is. And that's the basic essence of the therapy. Did I miss anything? No, absolutely not. You covered it very well. And typically, although it varies by person, but in clinical trials, it typically is about 12 sessions. Mm -hmm. And often you can see great gains. There are some individual differences. Mm -hmm. And while we are not medical doctors and, and we tend to focus more on the psychological interventions, it is worth noting that some people also find that having medication, either in combination with the therapy or starting off on its own, can also help to reduce some of the OCD symptoms. So that's also something if you're interested in inquiring about or if you meet with a mental health professional or your doctor, they can talk to you about the options and what we know about that type of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that was a really quick but thorough summary of the treatment for OCD, I think. I think we covered all the, the things I had in mind. Though. I think because we had that practice run yeah. the first time we recorded we the record session. all of our episodes <laughs> twice. That was so smooth. <laughs> You'd think we were both teachers. <laughs> <laughs> what a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, uh, quick recap. We've covered the diagnostic criteria for OCD. Uh, there's a few different things. Primarily, obsessions or compulsions or both. Uh, recognizing that it might be excessive and it creates a distress and or functional impairment in their life. Uh, there is uh, different treatments. The one that we primarily focused on today is a uh, psychotherapeutic treatment called exposure and response prevention, which fits within the CBT sort of umbrella of treatments of reducing that anxiety in response to the obsession. And there are other treatments, yes. but this is one that has strong research right. support. And so there there are other options available, too, mm -hmm. but we want to highlight this one because yep. of its strong research base. Yep, which, uh, of course, we've talked about before, but that's kind of the, the framework through which we choose our interventions uh, in therapy is what has the most research support. Try that out because it probabilistically, I don't think that's a word. Uh, I think so. Statistically it. speaking, uh, it's the most likely one to work for that individual. But if it doesn't, which sometimes happens, select a different one, take a hypothesis testing approach to treatment. Uh, assessing throughout, seeing if the symptoms are decreasing, or conversely, if the impairment is uh, decreasing. I guess that's not really conversely. I don't know. I guess I kind of think about impairment and symptoms. As impairment goes up, symptoms go down. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> What's the opposite of impairment? Functioning. As functioning? Yeah. I mean, I guess so. I guess I didn't go that way because sometimes I just say functional impairment, so I link them oh, together, yeah. but of course <laughs> so they're the feels opposite. Redundant yeah. No, you're right. Well, and it's true because if you just say functioning and don't qualify it, it could just be poor functioning and that is That's impairment. So, too. Huh. These jargony words. Yeah. <laughs> just get away from those. <laughs> if life is going real smoothly versus life ain't yes. going too smoothly. That's my new scale. I like that. Is it just like... Are those the only options on the scale? It's just that or that. <laughs> it's psychotomous, yeah, I think. I like that. We, if if nothing else, we've learned that if you just have two choices, mm -hmm. that's really all you need. In At life. least it really captures it. You don't get people stuck in the middle. Of that. No, that's true. They have to pick a side. <laughs> yeah, it may not accurately capture them, but at least we, we feel good about categorizing them. Absolutely. 
anything else to say about treatments before we move on? No, I will briefly mention, because I feel obliged to, mm-hmm. that um, the page we'll link to, which is the Division 12, which is the clinical psychology section of the American Psychological Association, also, it, it lists, it's very handy, by disorder, it lists the therapeutic approaches based on the level of research support. Mm-hmm. And so they do mention acceptance and commitment therapy, which we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. although only to talk about how ACT is, that's an acronym. Yes. Okay. And there's some modest research support for that too. So for if exposure response prevention has been done well, doesn't seem to be working, and there are other options too. Can I add something really mm-hmm. quick that I'm reading on the page that I yeah. really like? So on the bottom right below what you just referenced is a note mm-hmm. that just says, other psychological treatments may also be effective in uh, treating OCD, but they have not been evaluated with the same scientific rigor as treatments above. I like that. I like that, too. Can I read the next sentence? Oh, please. I like that, too. Yeah. <laughs> medications, many medications may also be helpful for OCD, but we do not cover medications in this website or this podcast. Or this podcast. Yeah, it fits so well. So just, I, we've said it. Uh, I'm going to say it just one more time. We're not saying there aren't other options. Right. These are just the ones that have the most scientific research that fit within our expertise. Mm-hmm. What a good show this is. <laughs> as long as we think so. As long as we, we're doing this just for our own fun. <laughs> it's just a bonus that other people listen in once in a while. Sure, it's mostly family members who we've killed. Actually, that's not true. I can't even get them to listen. I couldn't get either. Well, my brother plays this podcast when I'm around because it annoys me. Because I hate to hear my own voice. So whenever I... We'll say something snarky to him. He'll just crank up our podcast really loud. Like, oh, this is real good stuff. And like, I was like, please stop. I don't want to hear my own voice. <laughs> That's ninety percent of our download numbers. Is it's, it's just my brother like, trying oh, to look, We me. got a hundred downloads yeah. of this episode. Oh, it's just Brandon's brother it's, playing. It's just it. my brother trying to to uh, frustrate me. <laughs> I like it. It's a classic brother move. It really is, and, and uh, it, it's just hilarious every time because he makes these little. Like snarky comments. <laughs> oh, interesting thought. It's like, get out. So, thank you for listening, Brandon's brother. Yeah. <laughs> for whatever the purpose. <laughs> um. So, anything else about treatment? Nope, I don't think okay. so. I think we've covered uh, covered it pretty well. Okay. Nice summary. Should we talk about Monk? Let's do it. So, uh, we sent out a request for different fi- uh, fictional characters or popular culture depictions that are related to obsessive compulsive disorder and. We got uh, some really good ones. I think uh, for the sake of time, because we're already over the like the 35-minute mark almost, uh, we're going to just focus on Adrian Monk uh, for a couple reasons. It's the character that we're most familiar with, I would say, out of all the different ones. Uh, Emma Pillsbury, was, I thought that was another really good one from Glee. I haven't watched Glee in, in a while, though, so I'm not as up-to-date on her, but I do remember some of the stuff. But I think we'll just focus on Monk. That sounds today. good. I mean, Emma Pillsbury, especially, just briefly, I'll say, is a good example of how it interferes with her relationships Mm -hmm. particularly her romantic relationships Mm -hmm. her rituals and things like that and that i believe actually is what motivates her to seek therapy and seek Mm -hmm. help and i'm saying this sort of off the cuff it's been a long time but i remember it being a fairly uh it wasn't like at the expense of the disorder or anything like that the depiction but i might be wrong on that yeah they get some humor from it as she's scrubbing her grapes and stuff like that but like you see her they do two things, and I know you just said we weren't going to talk about it, so I'll be very brief. One thing when they do this whole thing about, like, accepting yourself as who you are, mm-hmm. and they do this, like, Lady Gaga theme of Born This Way, her mm-hmm. shirt says, I have OCD. So it's a whole, like, accepting that she has oh, a mental okay. disorder, which I thought was really well done. And then 
it does ultimately show her suffering and her parents, I think, even calling her a freak. I mean, it's oh, wow. really... Okay. So they do... So they have some humor, but I think they also really get into how this is painful for her. So okay. I think it's... I agree that it's a it's a good depiction okay. overall. Okay, yeah, that was or my... I like the depiction overall. That was my sense, but okay. I, I didn't remember for sure, so... Um, but anyway, uh, back to Monk. Um, so I want to, I'm thinking a little bit about when I first was introduced to Monk and I don't remember exactly how it got started. It may have been a show that I even just, oh, this is on Netflix and I watched too much Netflix. So maybe I'll just watch this, um, as an undergraduate. Um, so that's kind of when I remember watching it and I watched like through all of it. I didn't take a break. I just watched the whole series. Um, and absolutely loved it. it. It's a great show. I think Monk is a, a really interesting character. And I even think, like, at my, like, second year of undergraduate, I wrote a little, like, extra credit assignment for Abnormal Psychology about Monk. And just, it was sort of like a, well, it's a lot like what we do for characters for this. A pseudo sort of report, like, if you were treating the character. Like, what disorder might they have and what might, I don't know if you recommended a treatment, but maybe based on whatever was in the textbook or something like that. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That is cool. I never found that report. Oh, I never oh. looked for it, so it might still be somewhere. <laughs> I think that is correlated looking and finding. <laughs> Traditionally. <laughs> I'm not sure, Particularly though. for digital things. <laughs> like, at least if it's a physical report, it could just be, like, lying around. Up, yeah. But, but, yeah, you, you kind of have to be a little more intentional about finding <laughs> digital uh, papers. Um. And you love a detective, which I... Oh, yeah. I do love detective stuff. Uh, so I'll, here is a, a quick list of my favorite fictional characters. Batman, Sherlock Holmes, uh, House a little bit. Less so, though. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about House these days. I won't make you commit to it now. Yeah. Uh, that's for another episode, maybe. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, a lot... Uh, Sherlock Holmes is a really good one, too. Like, all of the iterations, I think, are pretty cool. Well, I only watched the first episode of Elementary. That's, like, the... Uh, american version mm. of sherlock i think i didn't like that but it could have gotten better but i really like like the old arthur conan doyle novels i have all those and uh short stories and batman of course detective um yeah i like detective stuff i kind of like a good mystery so yeah and yeah. monk is no exception i mean he's oh, he's a great detective and you know just i one of the things that i like about his character is that you get some of his background. I think this show was on for, I want to guess, seven seasons. I, that's on 2002 to 2009. The math checks out. Okay. <laughs> that's good. Um, the human calculator. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and in that time, you learn that even as a young boy, he started to have, he had symptoms related to OCD. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that does happen, that you can have age of onset is that young, and so that part is realistic. And you learn that his brother Ambrose has agoraphobia, so you learn that these anxiety disorders kind of run in the family. And he definitely, as he develops, becomes a detective for the police department in San Francisco and then has this very traumatic event happen. So he has, apparently has OCD, it mm -hmm. seems, but it's at a level where he's functional and mm -hmm. he's, a, he's able to detect when things are a little bit off. And they kind of suggest that maybe having obsessive compulsive disorder, his attention to detail is what helps him to solve cases in sometimes unconventional ways because he'll notice something that maybe other people don't mm -hmm. notice. But then after his wife tragically dies in a car bombing, which he takes some 
blame for. He believes it was meant for him for a long time, I think. Which is terrible. And yeah. so he basically, he decompensates after that. He, he has very low functioning. He's not able to be work for the police department anymore. And when the show starts, he's working independently as a con- consultant, as mm-hmm. a private investigator. Mm-hmm. And he needs an assistant to help him with yep. things. And so they could have... You know, sometimes I feel like there's a simplistic way mental disorders are are treated as though there was this one thing that happened, a trauma of some sort, mm-hmm. and then they got this way. Here they're suggesting more realistically, from what we know from the research, that people tend to have some of these tendencies and vulnerabilities ahead of time, and that if someone has a trauma or a stressor, it can exacerbate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, It is a more complex picture for sure. One thing I'm wondering about, and also thank you for the really nice summary about Monk, uh, is we talked a little bit just with with Glee with this, is I want to get your opinion about whether or not they use the symptoms that Monk is depicted as experiencing in a way that kind of uh, makes too much light of them. Or do they balance, like, uh, making the show engaging and entertaining? Of course, a TV show has to be entertaining. Uh, but with also depicting him with compassion. And specifically what I'm thinking about as as another example, and uh, which doesn't fit perfectly, I don't think, under the OCD umbrella, is Sheldon Cooper from The Big Bang Theory. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and very admittedly, I've only seen the first four seasons of, of Big Bang Theory, but I think at least within those four seasons, sometimes some of the stuff that, that some of the behaviors that Sheldon is shown as experiencing are very, are, it's not very compassionate where you could imagine that someone experiencing uh, some of those behaviors or symptoms that might be struggling, but he's not really shown as struggling. That's just He's just sort of has a rigid way of, of uh, navigating the world. and it, But it's not always compassionate. I, I think that you had mentioned that changes a little bit, maybe in later seasons of that show at least. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on Monk with that. Yeah, and I, if you haven't, if any listeners haven't seen Big Bang Theory, some of the behaviors that Sheldon exhibits, he sits in a certain place on the couch, mm-hmm. he knocks three times and says mm-hmm. Penny's name, he has to eat at the same restaurant at the same, basically every day of the week mm-hmm. has a specific place that they order from. And the background of it, without going too much into it, is that some people have thought that maybe he has high-functioning autism mm-hmm. because it doesn't seem like he, it's, they kind of, look at it as more of what are often referred to as kind of stereotypic interests because he doesn't feel distressed by them. Although he is distressed if he can't have things his way. There could be an argument for OCPD Mm -hmm. maybe even, although the knocking three times does seem Mm -hmm. more like a compulsion rather than kind of just having a routine. Mm -hmm. But that being said, the people who wrote the show said they didn't have a mental disorder in mind when they did this. They modeled it after someone. And in the later shows, I think, I'm not up to date, but they show some of the problems he runs into in his relationship where he cares about Amy, but has some problems related to his rigidity. But anyway, with regards to to Monk, there are some light points, but some of the shows are really serious. Mm-hmm. And I think there are, especially sometimes where you can see he's clearly... In pain. I mean, one thing that is a theme throughout is that he hates not being working for the police department anymore. That's really painful for him. And so that alone, even though there are some other more lighthearted things like, oh, he is reorganizing things to be symmetrical while he's talking to someone. Or, oh, he's when the garbage um, 
folks went on strike, he is basically ready to move because mm-hmm. he can't stand the garbage piling up. And there's like a level of humor to it, but to me, it's always paired with some kind of compassion. This is a guy who's suffering, the guy you care about. And it almost feels like if you show that you care about this person, I think in many situations, my personal style is that humor can be a way of coping or lightening up so that people stay engaged. Because if it was all just super sad, it might Mm, be hard for people to stay into that, some people anyway. So I I feel like it's a good balance. I don't have obsessive compulsive Mm -hmm. disorder. And if I did... I'm, I might feel differently, and if someone out there has it or someone they care about has it, I'd be interested to hear what you think. But at least from my personal opinion, I don't see that. But what do you think? Yeah, exact same. I think that they, they do show a lot of compassion uh, for the character, or at least illicit compassion mm-hmm. for the character, I should say. I'm remembering one moment in particular where there's a, an FBI agent in town who's helping with some case or something like that. And as the FBI agent is leaving, he has a trailer of boxes and folders or whatever. And Monk uh, didn't get along with the agent very well and goes into the trailer and sort of turns one of the boxes to be askew from the rest. And uh, is, I think, speaking with his assistant at the time and says, like, you know, I really got that FBI agent. I turned one of the boxes. That's just going to that's just gonna drive him, you know, it's going to drive him to the yeah. wall. Something like that. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, of course, you know, that's lighthearted and funny, mm-hmm. but that moment in particular really caught me and made me feel a lot of compassion for Monk yeah. because to have a worldview where, uh, you know, you think where that's so distressing for Monk to have that in his life that he, he thinks that's going to drive someone else, uh, you know, to, to feel upset, uh, that really made me like, man, that, that must be a real struggle. Uh, at least within the depiction of the character. So I, I agree with what you said. I think there's a nice balance of keeping the show lighthearted and entertaining, but also showing the distress and the impairment um, that goes along uh, with the disorder. Yeah, they highlight the absurdity, but it is in a way, like you said, where you feel for him because it yeah. does feel like he doesn't have a lot of insight into it mm-hmm. right you know and so we've mentioned some of his obsessions or compulsions maybe it's worth just kind of categorizing them he has numerous ones and we yeah. should say people have obsessive compulsive disorder sometimes they have one or two or can have many it yeah, just varies true. by person sometimes it's really one thing yeah. but he has a compulsion to basically touch the top of things like the lamp posts when he wants yep. by he Definitely has a thing about contamination with dirt where he uses wipes, and that's Mm -hmm. a big thing. Symmetry wears the same outfit every single day. Mm -hmm. Cleanliness. Yep. He even works with a therapist who at one point is, I think, is missing an arm. And it's, like, pretty distressing for Monk even. And I I don't remember exactly what he tries to do, but he somehow tries to to cope with that in his mind. Like, I don't remember exactly what he does, but... I remember that yeah, was distressing. He, co- he covers oh, one eye. Right, so again, yeah. it's an example where, like, on some levels, it's not funny. That's really right. tragic. But the way that it's playing out is just showing the lengths to which he's going to, you know. And and maybe that's a good transition point to talk about. Well, I I love the show, which is a strong feeling. But I love the show. Oh, I really absolutely. do. I do, too. not going to hold back my geekdom on this one. But I love the show. I think that... Monk and his, like, so many people in the show are great. The chief. Oh, yeah. There are so many talented people. The therapists are nice, but they're not doing exposure and response prevention. And so I could see how that could be harmful and that Mm -hmm. it doesn't suggest that there are ways to treat and reduce some of his painful symptoms. He's not getting the most active treatment. Mm -hmm. It just, and part of it, I think that he is reluctant 
to he would be reluctant to engage in exposure. I mean, oh yeah, but most people are. That's why they don't do it. You know, yeah, it, it's not, it's not on the table. Funner. Yeah, no. no, it's just not. It's not on the table. And I don't know if they thought that would change the show. You know, it's not about his therapy and his treatment. Right. It's about his detective stuff. So I know it's hard to balance fiction with yeah. what would be my priority, which is you know this. Accurate. That being said, they have had a few reality shows, including by psychologist david tolan the ocd project i believe it was called on mtv mm-hmm. where they do kind of extreme exposure and response yes. prevention and on one hand it's super dramatic and it's for tv so there right. are some other things in mind but it i think it does help people to see there are treatments for these extreme things and you can see that people get better so those are my basic thoughts about the treatment stuff yeah it's hard to reconcile that a little bit too because mm-hmm. the the relationship that Monk has with his therapist, which the therapist changes throughout the course of the series, of course, is a, a main part of the show. So if it was just the first 12 episodes and then right. there's no more therapist, of course, that part would be missing. So you can... Yeah. I don't want to get say give it a break for the narrative reasons, but I can at least see the logic. Yeah, and, and also, you know, that explosion response prevention, the clinical trials is 12 sessions, but maybe it's worth saying the listeners to that... Monk has some other issues going oh, yeah. on, too. And also, it's not fixed. It's variable no. depending if the client still needs treatment. It's not like if they're available to, to them. They, they don't say, okay, now you're done, usually at 12 sessions, right? And especially with the trauma with Trudy that he's had unresolved. Yeah. Then, you know, but I agree. That does kind of interfere with this idea of we have the short-term treatment that can yeah. help a lot. Um. So, and then there's that one episode where he takes medication and he's totally laid back and he's acting really weird. And it's funny, but that's not really how medication works. And I'm, and I'm guessing some people think that about medication because oh, I've heard true. people say that, that it's going to make them a different person or the, something. The word I used here, or I hear used a lot. I don't use it. I hear it used a mm-hmm. lot. Uh, both like in, I've heard it outside of, you know, just in everyday life, but also mm-hmm. even in session is oh, well, I, I don't want my child or I don't want to feel like a zombie. Right. That's the word I always use. Yeah. Which isn't a perfect representation of mm-hmm. what's depicted with Monk. He's right. sort of more of a, I don't know, what's the... It's like a laid-back a really, party dude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That. It's, it's, again, it's funny because it's him, but, you know, the medication doesn't work like that. And, and he can't do his detective work, right? right. So that's, that's that message. Like, if you get treatment for this thing you're going to lose your talents because yeah. of it which that's just not true sort of romanticizes the disorder a little bit yeah and also adds to the idea that the medication takes away something about your personality right yeah mm-hmm. which isn't helpful no especially when there's already so much stigma about medication and uh, therapy mm-hmm. yeah, for mental health uh, challenges mm-hmm. yeah interesting what else is there to say about monkey? I didn't have anything else to say. I thought we, unless you have something else to say, maybe we could just briefly mention resources. I think that's a great to, idea. Okay. We're, we're cruising up to an hour here. Okay. Yeah, so. <laughs> There's a lot to say. Two, a few resources I want to mention. One is the International Obsessive Compulsive Disorder Foundation, which you can find at iocdf.org. And there are a lot of resources, information, available on that website we'll link to the website we mentioned before that talks about exposure Uh and response prevention in addition to that i want to mention there are a variety of levels of quality of self-help books out there and some of them are based on someone's personal feelings or their experience and those are important contributions but if you're interested in 
basically a self-help version of exposure and response prevention or learning more about obsessive compulsive disorder. Something that I've loaned to clients that they found helpful before is a book called Stop Obsessing, How to Overcome Your Obsessions and Compulsions. It's a revised edition by Edna Foa and Reed Wilson. It's available uh, for $12. And so that's a good alternative for people who either they can't find a therapist meets her or they want to try some things on their own first. This does a nice job of highlighting it. And I've had the experience before where people have read it and said, I didn't, you know, this, I didn't really realize other people were experiencing this thing I'm experiencing. And that can do a lot to help with acceptance and reducing kind of shame. Mm-hmm. Great suggestion. And that, I think, is a wrap for OCD Part 2. I think so, too. I don't have a Pearl of Wisdom prepared. Hmm. We did it on our take one of this. We had a, a quote from Monk. We did. Do you think you can find that again? I and, do think and so. I'll leave that as a Pearl of Wisdom because I think that Monk, I think Monk's a good character. And I think we can close off with uh, one of the deeper sort of Monkisms. There you go. So uh, here is our Monk. Pearl of Wisdom. Believe me, frogs get tired. The hopping and the thing with the tongue. You try hopping around and catching flies. You wouldn't last ten minutes. <laughs> Just don't it's remember so the. Con- true. It's so true, and I don't understand the context or remember the context. No, and it's it's Wednesday, and this is a good Wisdom Wednesday thing. Maybe sure we'll is. have to That's tweet a good this idea. next we week. Do that. Or today, even. This is a preview. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, that's something that I could see on like a, a motivational poster with yes. a frog. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Man, <laughs> I need more monk in my life. It's true. Anyway, uh, we have a new review. We're going to oh, try yes. to be more thorough about thanking folks who review us. If you have a second, we really appreciate when you go and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps other folks to find the show, and it really helps me to feel good about myself when I read nice <laughs> things that you write about our show, which is also important. So we want to do a, a more thorough job of thanking folks who take the time to leave, uh, leave reviews for us uh, or tweet about us. That's really great, too. So um, I'll, I'll read it. How about Okay. I don't want to lean too close to the mic. I feel like I've been doing that. I'm going to have to fix that later. A little behind-the-scenes uh, commentary. <laughs> this, this isn't a lot of behind-the-scenes commentary. <laughs> uh, Annie TCM left us a great review and uh, wrote, One of the best podcasts I listen to. The way that they combine humor, entertainment, and education so effortlessly is amazing. You learn so much, but you laugh even more. Listening to experts makes uh, experts make complex information so palatable using pop culture favorites is an awesome format. I'm excited every time there's a new one. Thank well, you, Annie TCM. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Annie TCM. And also, thank you for calling me an expert. <laughs> that's what I'm always looking for, is to cherry-pick those individual compliments for myself. <laughs> Uh, is there are there any reviews by your brother in here <laughs> if, if there are say, it'll probably just say Aaron's oh there'll be a one that star good. that says says okay brother <laughs> yeah. or maybe not but okay. uh, good brother okay yeah. podcast yeah. <laughs> uh, don't give him any ideas <laughs> no that's uh i really appreciate that feedback or we really i don't want it just claim the appreciation only for myself but we really appreciate that comment and all comments and everyone who takes the time to tweet about us tweet at us tweet to us or just interact with us in any way we really enjoy it all so if you have time uh talk to us or review us 
And thank I... you very much. And also, we have two new posts up since our... I don't know if oh, we mentioned... Yeah. We have a post on the psychology of Spider-Man, mm-hmm. and we also have a post um, analyzing Anya from Buffy the Vampire Slayer about her fear of bunnies. Mm-hmm. Which I should say, there's very little psychology in the Spider-Man Homecoming. It's mostly just a fun post. It's really fun, though. It's a fun one, yeah. There so wasn't a lot reading. of mental health in there. No, so. but some concern, understandably, absolutely. from Aunt May. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, all right, folks. Uh, thank you so much for listening in. And uh, you'll probably hear from us in, in just a couple seconds because we're <laughs> going to be doing two episodes this week. So, thank you and see you later, alligators. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.